Welcome to Sports, Clips, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husson and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to another episode of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. This is episode number seven. Uh, Mr. Husong, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure to be it here, always Sean. Is. How was your weekend? It was wonderful. I went to uh, Jellystone Park out in the Adirondacks, did nice. a little camping with the kids. I'm going to say camping in air quotes. We were in a cabin, but it counts for us because we, we don't camp. Professional campers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, it was it was pretty bare bones. I mean, it was a 10-foot by 12-foot cabin, give or take, with twin or excuse me, with bunk full-size beds and then bunk twin beds. So it slept six exactly. My family of six fit in there snugly. But it was a lot of fun. If you are not a big, avid camper but want to give it a try with kids, I highly recommend it. Jellystone nice. Park was terrific. The kids Excellent. had a blast. We had a good time. How about there you? you? They're, not, we're not, they're not sponsoring the show. But no, it was just goodwill on my part. Excellent. They did a really Very nice good. job, and I'm happy with them. Excellent. So anyways, how about you? Yeah. How was your weekend? Things were good. Um, I'm always rooting for uneventful. Uneventful it was. Um, we did get a uh, nice uh, Sunday interview from ourselves uh, uh, last night that we get to play back tonight, which will be fine, interesting, I think. So um, but let's turn to some local sports news, maybe. Uh, let's go Buffalo Blue Jays. Heck yes. I'm into it. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard, but the country of Canada has banned baseball. Um to be played there so the blue jays are looking for a new home arena and it's seemingly down to two their their spring training facility in florida and buffalo new york the home of their triple a team so as a as a buffalonian uh what do you think about the blue jays coming to your hometown uh in fairness, I don't know if I count as a Buffalonian. I only lived there for about 10 years. So I still plenty. I, I appreciate that. Uh I love the idea. I think it would be a blast. I, I know Buffalo fairly well, and that would be a big deal for the city. It would be a big deal for the area. People would get into it because it's fun. And uh I why not? Yeah. No, I mean I said most people, you know, I, I feel like there's kind of like this down sentiment on baseball in general, but if it's just gonna come to your community for a few months I feel like it would be totally embraced by the by the Buffalo community. I don't know. I mean, I think it's good. I think it would be good for the Western New York. We'll see if uh, our governor gets in the way, and maybe he doesn't allow that to uh, transpire because there's too much uh, public interaction going around. But I think it's I think it would be fun. Um, again, I don't know when they have to make this decision, but I'm guessing rather quickly since the season is starting soon here. So um, I don't know. We're going to stay tuned on that and see. Maybe we'll have a uh, a new New York State baseball team to uh, root for here at least temporarily so um that's interesting i don't know anything else on the buffalo blue jays i mean i can't imagine our governor getting in the way of that it's not his nature to be intrusive and interfere with your private right. business transactions you're probably right and in the other in the other bit of sports news we had a basically a domination in the pga uh john rom just finished out sunday and nobody even kind of he didn't probably didn't know he was playing against anybody. So I think he ended up winning by five strokes. Yeah. Um, you know, he's one of the best players in the world. I think he's like 25 or something. So he's got a lot of years left to him. The, 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 the sport of PGA golf looks very, very healthy. Uh, agreed entirely. Uh, it was not an eventful tournament. He won it walking away, which good for him. Uh, not what I'm going for when I tune into golf. But a very difficult tournament. He won... I give him even more credit. He was at, I think, minus 11, and the next closest minus six because the scoring was brutal. I mean, people yeah. were 
you know, my boy Bryson put up a 10 on a couple hole or at least one hole. I saw another double digit score from another golfer. I mean, it was, it, the scoring was tough. Um, all right. It's, I give him credit for, for basically to maintain his composure through a lot of tough play. He doesn't have a reputation as having the ability to, um, has the ability to, um, walk away even with a crowded field full of very good golfers. And he got after it. He went hard. And it's no small feat to to beat that many golfers on that hard of a golf course by that many strokes. Like, these guys are the best of the best of the best. And he held his own. Not even held his own. He just exceeded all of the expectations and got away. So it's good for John Rahm. It's a lot of fun to watch. The the no audience thing is still sort of a interesting element to golf tournaments we'll go with. Uh, but it doesn't really take away. You still get to watch it, and I still love the guys that are hanging out and cheering on everyone, even if there's only six of them, just to give the illusion of crowd attendance, which is always fun. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if eventually they'll go do the baseball thing with like cardboard cutouts of fans standing in the crowd. I'm, uh, not, sure. I'm not sure they'll get that far, but that's interesting. <laughs> I can um, hope. Yes. Um, so, well, the other news from the golf tournament, uh, Jack Nicholas. Nope. Jack Nicholson. Nope. You had it right the first time. I was first time. I do yeah. that all the time. Jack Nicholas uh, got and recovered from COVID-19. Oh, I did not hear that. Bit yeah. So that's interesting. Nope. Yeah, that's uh, good to know. Um, I, I don't think we have anything else in sports to go. NFL, no. I mean, they're... The, the Washington Football Club might soon actually have a team name. Okay. We're still deciding on that. I heard that they had... Uh, are moving forward there, but no, no new news on that. No, no, I just, they're, they're caught up in, oh, well, they have now their new legal battle where some former female employees have, have come, come out, out and, and I'm going to say, say alleged, alleged but, but a, 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 alleged, alleged may not be the right word. Um, verified might be accurate in this case, but we'll stick with alleged for now. Some pretty persistent sexual harassment from some high level people within the Washington football organization. God, that sounds dumb to say. They need a team name. I just want to call them. I don't care what it is. I just want to call them something. Other yeah, than they, they need to football. figure that out and move on. And whatever it is, just, again, figure it out, I guess. Um, right. Let's, let's move, move to, to New, York. New York. And... All right. <laughs> moving to New York. Go, go, go. Let's figure out Corona. All right, so... New York State, for those of you who are not aware, uh, Andrew Cuomo, our illustrious governor, uh, champion of individual liberties and the people's rights, came out last week during a press conference and announced that he was going to be instituting a new executive order whereby all service in bars and restaurants was going to change in an effort to further combat the spread of COVID-19. So the rule stated that you could no longer just go into a bar and order a drink. You had to order food in order to be served alcohol. Now, the other part of this was no stand-up service at bars. They wanted everybody spread out. So if you weren't in a bar stool, you couldn't sit at the bar. You had to go to a table. Fine. But the food thing kind of rubbed some people the wrong way. There was a lot of jokes online about how, okay, well, if I go to a bar and have a drink, I could get COVID. But as long as I order food, I couldn't. Restaurant and bar owners were understandably perturbed by having yet another 
rule to follow that they now have to watch and maintain. And, of course, the only penalty for them screwing up is the loss of their liquor license. So, you know, no big thing for a bar or restaurant if that happens. No. So, uh, God bless the state of New York, and I've never been more proud of the residents of our wonderful state. Many, many restaurants introduced a, uh, an answer to the governor's edict, which was some type of dollar menu or below for food. And so some of the restaurants were for a dollar, you could go ahead and get uh, a bowl full of croutons. That's food that they bought. It counts. Uh, I saw one that was nine French fries for a dollar, one boneless chicken wing. Uh, I saw somebody that was selling peanuts for five cents as much as you could eat, which I think that one was actually my favorite because that was just the most blatant this is stupid that I saw. Everything else you could at least argue was like a dollar menu to make money. Yeah. I mean, like you said, so this was an effort to basically reduce gathering sizes, right? So, I mean, it kind of goes to show, though, that, you know, intention, <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't dictate human behavior through authority all the time. People figure see through it. They, they know what's going on. And, the, you know, the, to, to, your, to your point, they give credit to the establishments who basically said, we can get through this. We can see right this. Right. And so basically outwitted the governor by creating dollar menus, right? So, um now, in retaliation to that, he has now seemingly decided to threaten those restaurants with closing again if they don't start being more strict and complying with the governor's orders on social distancing and mask wearing and capacity limits and other things that he's implemented on, on these restaurants. So now he's threatened them. To be clear on what you mean by threaten, not loss of liquor license, shut down yeah, all close bars, them down not again. individual yeah, bars. Close everybody down, down, everybody down. Um, which again seems to fall in line with his rather uh, heavy-handed rulings to date. So... Um, it's just more of the same to me. It's again, uh, I, I feel like he got his, uh, uh, his ego trampled on a little bit by the, uh, creative local businesses and he's going to slap them down because he thinks he can. So, um, well, maybe calling the menu items Cuomo fries was a little over the top. Well, but I, I mean, it all if the, the shoe fits right. I mean, it's not like they, you know, whatever. So, I mean, I've seen way worse menus. Um, fair, uh, you know, some of these things are were appropriate, and like I said, their their restaurants is in real reality. The joke aside, they're holding on to their businesses, right? So, they're this is any way to keep money coming into the till. This is what they need. They need customers, and if they don't have customers coming to their bar, if they're a bar, and there's several bars who do not have the ability to offer food, so they're just closed already. Um, you know, the ones who can make accommodations have been trying to do so, and good on them. And hopefully, you know. I would like to see that the, the governor probably thought that he was overreacted, but he didn't. He's doubling down on his actions and threatening these same small businesses with basically destroying more of their lives. Oh, he's basically cool hand Luke. He always doubled down on, on bad decisions. Whatever it is, he always goes double or nothing. No matter how dumb it is, he wants to double down on it. And I think here's the issue that I personally have with this. Of We all are subject to a certain amount of government restriction and government edict on our life. All right. You drive a certain speed on roads because that's what the government says you should do. That's fine. We all agree to it. It's reasonable. In some neighborhoods, you shouldn't drive 70 miles an hour. It's not safe. That's why we have speed limits. We have rules about seatbelts. We have rules on fire codes. How many people you can put in a building, different actions that you can take, and they all make sense. The question always comes down to when you're looking at a limitation on freedom, is the end result of the rule going to have an actual impact and make things better? 
And in this case, my answer is no shot. This is not going to make any difference whatsoever. You're not going to be able to quell human behavior, nor should you. I mean, honestly, even if everybody followed this rule to the letter of the law, is it going to have any massive impact on the number of cases that we get for positive COVID-19? Yeah, no. There's no shot. I, there, there's no science behind this whatsoever. All right, so how how infringing is the rule on your freedoms? Uh, not terribly, but the threat of being losing your liquor license and losing your business because you're not properly monitoring who bought food and who didn't seems a little uh, onious, yeah. burdensome, burdensome. Let's go with burdensome. For sure. Uh for no good. Too. I don't care if it's a, <laughs> right. if it's an easy thing to follow. It, there's no point. Why do we accept these stupid rules that don't mean in New York State? We're just jaded to it. Yeah. We just smile and roll our eyes like Cuomo again. But it doesn't stop. We just keep getting the rules keep getting dumber. They keep getting further removed from anything that is helpful. Yeah. And for the most part, we're all kind of like, well, this is New York. Yeah. And I feel, you know, again, I, I'm sticking with the idea that he realizes he made such a blunder early on with his handling of the nursing homes that this is all in a, a complete capitulation to the be the safe governor, to, to over, you know, create the, the most locked down, the most mask wearing, the most social distance state that they can. And he's trying to win that way. Um, so far he has, um, that being said there, I think there's a little bit of a chink in the armor where even maybe his hometown network, CNN may have, uh, kind of brought up the idea that he might be too early taking a victory lap. So have you guys seen this poster that the governor released the New York tough poster? If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Oh, it's there's quite, more than it's, one. It's quite a piece of work, right? And there are more than one. So this is just the latest version. So, um, this poster, which is kind of making the rounds uh, through some of the media, basically being laughed at, <laughs> trying to figure out what this was, what what this poster was about, um, and he's selling these for, I believe, at cost eleven fifty is what he decided he was going to sell these at for. So, um, if you want a piece of history, as he puts it, a little commemorative pandemic poster, you're more than welcome to fund your state government with eleven fifty. Um, but it drew the attention of CNN. Jake Tapper and Sanjay Gupta, where they kind of picked it apart, uh, the poster and his victory lap. Did you get to see that video at all? Or I did. Okay. Uh, good for Jake Tapper. Good for Sanjay Gupta. I, listen, there are some things that are just indefensible. Uh, the, the, the numbers out of New York fall into that category for me of, sure, there are some things you could use to explain why it got so bad, but there's no way to fully explain how much worse New York did than everybody else. You cannot take away all culpability or responsibility from Governor Cuomo and his team at the DOH by talking population density or it was early or anything else. Like, yes, all of those things contribute, but there's probably no reason that you could give that justifies why New York State did worse than everywhere else. Not just other states, other countries, other areas, and so much worse than everywhere else. So I, I'm not inclined to give anybody a pass because I think the cover-up is on and it's just like, well, if we don't talk about it, it's not real. The absolute balls it takes to release this poster is fascinating. I mean... Yeah. I mean, even the guys on CNN called it revisionist history, right? So, like, he, you know, there is no mention of the 32,000-plus people who have died uh, in the state on that poster. It's all a gigantic pat of himself on the back um 
I mean, it is dystopian. It's dystopian to be the to be nice. Um, it's crazy. Let me see if I can pull up this uh, Gupta interview here. It's only a couple minutes, and uh, it, it's worth it if I can get it here. Hold on one second. New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers, the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. Here's what Governor Cuomo had to say yesterday. What we went through and what we did was historic. Because we did tame the beast. We did turn the corner. We did plateau that mountain. And then we came down the other side. And they will be talking about what we did for decades to come. Here to discuss this and more is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, look, I know a lot of New Yorkers are happy that the infection numbers are down. And, you know, we all hope that they stay down. But let's be clear. This is revisionism. And a lot of the crowing and Governor Cuomo going on late night is, is offending a lot of New Yorkers, given the fact that this is the highest death toll of any state, more than 32,000 dead. The next closest right. is New Jersey with 17,000. Are people going to be talking about what Governor Cuomo did for decades to come in the way he hopes? Uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think so, Jake. I mean, I think we're very early days in this. You know, we're looking at the first few pages of, of the history books, and I think there's a lot more to be written. I'm a little surprised uh, by that poster, I got to tell you, because, you know, I think if anything, that's what this virus has taught us is that we need to have a significant amount of humility. This virus surprises us over and over again. There's no place in the country that's not vulnerable. And I think we should have learned, I think we have learned, that victory laps are, are not the thing to be doing because we're, we're not through this by a long shot, sad to say, even in New York. I think there's two ways of sort of looking at this. You know, on one hand, the house was on fire and uh, Governor Cuomo helped put the fire out. But I think there's also, you know, we heard from a lot of uh, our, our medical contributors today, infectious disease specialists who say, look, I mean, part of the legacy, part of the story will be that did New York act too slowly as well initially? The house went on fire, why? Did it need to go on fire? The flip side, I think, Jake, as, as the governor is alluding to, is that if you look at the country as a whole right now, New York is the place, at least within the United States, that people will point to and say they did, they've done a good job. That's a place that has at least given a little bit of inspiration to other places that they can bring these numbers down like you see on the screen. But I got to tell you, uh, Jake, we heard from a lot of people today, some of it solicited, some of it unsolicited, and, and most everyone had some tone of, look, uh, let's slow this down, this, this victory lap. You know, we're, we're very early days here. If, if people sort of get this sense of complacency, uh, we've seen it in other countries around the world, we've seen it here in the United States, and we've seen it throughout history, that can be a, a, a real problem, Jake. All right, so that's CNN, the Cuomo News Network, the uh, kind of pointing out some of the obvious things that uh, people that haven't been pointing out uh, all along here. I, I want to give them credit 
but I also want to take away credit for being late to the uh, assignment date here too, my friend. So what? Do you, I don't know. It was, it was glad to see that somebody finally said it on a national level, as opposed to just a bunch of local, you know, people here in, in New York State seeing what we firsthand, and then seeing how that has not been disseminated through the national media. And it's I don't know. I guess a little bit happy to see that. And I got a little bit of uh, sunlight on the uh, problem here in New York. I can think of no better evidence about the state of our media in this country today than the fact that this is an accomplishment. <laughs> For sure. The no fact doubt. that a, na- a news network saying something like this poster or this governor of the state that has 32,000 people that have this disease, more than double anybody else, taking a victory lap is and and they just said premature not even wrong not even like you're insane just well it's premature the fact that that is an accomplishment is just sad this should be the most obvious thing in the world right now for you to take a victory lap at this point is just insanity and like i said it's 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 long overdue so i'm glad to see it um hopefully there'll be more scrutiny and you know additional eyes on what happened here in New York, as opposed to somehow creating an 80% approval rating for a governor who oversaw the worst response of any area of the entire world of of COVID-19. And here's the thing. If the people that are supporting him and saying, well, just look at the other states now, like in order for you to be right, do you realize how bad it has to get in these other states? Because yes, they're spiking. And yes, they're having their death tolls of their daily deaths are increasing. Nobody is in the ballpark of where new york was in its worst like we have forgotten how bad it was when we were having 700 800 a thousand people dying per day in the state and now you're looking at florida with seven thousand cases in a day or eleven thousand cases and 200 deaths now don't get me wrong 200 deaths is not good it's a virus people are going to get sick people are going to die to compare that as somehow worse than what new york did I, I'm just at a loss for words. Yeah. Well, we, fortunately, we have some perspective from another state. Uh, so I'm going to bring our interview portion of the program to uh, the audience now. So you guys may know we had uh, Dr. Andrew Doe. Uh, he's a vascular and interventional radiologist at Elate Health in Houston, Texas. So he is right in the middle of it. Um, you know, one of the the, the hotbeds, if you will, the, the not just Texas, but Houston itself. And uh, I'm going to bring him, uh, we did this interview yesterday here, so I'm going to bring this on here and let everybody uh, get a listen to what he had to say. Um, real quickly, if you get to the end here, he asks for questions uh, from the audience. So if you guys have some specific questions that you'd like me to present to Dr. Doe, uh, find a way to get those questions to me and we will pass those on. So... Um, Without any further ado, I'd like to uh, bring on our guest interview. Welcome to another episode of Sports Clicks and Politics. This is a very special episode, an extra episode, uh, a guest interview episode. Uh, With us today, we have Andrew Doe. Um, He is a board-certified, fellowship-trained, vascular and interventional radiologist at L8 Health in Houston, Texas. And uh, Dr. Doe, I want to welcome you to this program, and uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Let's do a a COVID-101, if we could. Um, 
what what do you know about the virus or what do we know about the virus what do we know at the beginning um what have we learned along the way and what do we know where we're at right now so let me preface the 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 whole conversation by the fact that you know i i don't think covid or the the coronavirus um this basically the, the the most correct name is SARS um, COVID two because it looks much like the SARS we had back in two thousand nine. But let me preface it saying it, this is a real disease. This is a very serious disease. This is a deadly disease for the certain um, people. Um, but it's it's very similar to other infections we've had as far as the virus. Um, we understand how the virus gets into the cells and we've slowly been learning how the virus affects the body. So basically the virus itself gets into the cell through a little thing called the angiotensin receptor. Um, and that's a very important receptor for physicians because that's how we control blood pressure. Most of our drugs, um, work with that receptor. So this coronavirus that gets into the cell starts to get like any virus gets us to make more coronaviruses. Um, and then eventually our body starts to fight it. And what we learned kind of midway through was it wasn't the virus that was causing all these patients to have this severe respiratory issue. It was our reaction to it. Um, it, it was called a cytokine storm or it is called a cytokine storm. So basically our body just overreacts to this virus being there. And if we look at the sickest patients, their viral count is actually very low, but their immune response is very high. <clears throat> That was the first thing we, we noticed. Um, the second thing we noticed was when we got these patients that got this respiratory issue, typically when you see this, and you can see this kind of thing with anything, with the flu, with the common cold. You know, I can think back to 2006, my first patient as an intern, young lady on the floor, maybe 30 years old, had a cold a few weeks before, came in, a little bit of trouble breathing, so... ER admits her. And I'm thinking to myself, young, healthy lady, she got a cold. What are we worried about? And uh, within six hours of her being on the floor, the nurse calls me and says, she's really having trouble breathing. I've got the oxygen all the way up. You know, what do you want to do? And I thought to myself, boy, this is odd <laughs> being a naive intern. So I called my senior resident and he said, uh-oh, get her to the ICU. And what she's experienced is what we call um, SARS, severe adult respiratory syndrome or with this virus, it's just severe respiratory syndrome. We still keep the A in. Um, and what happens is with these patients, these, these common cold ones or these flu ones, these patients, the lungs get very stiff. You can't ventilate them. You have to push the air in under high pressure. And when you do that, you can keep the oxygen up, but it's not a very good exchange and the body's not doing well. The, coronavirus or the COVID-19 when this happens for some reason we couldn't figure out early on why these patients the lungs would move normally they didn't have any issues with that they weren't hard to what we call ventilate we could give them all the oxygen we wanted and the blood oxygen levels still wouldn't come up and then we figured it out that it wasn't like these normal viruses that make the lung tissue act poorly it's actually causing clotting in the veins that take the blood away from the lungs back to the heart so it can go to the rest of the body um, and bring the oxygen there. So this was, this was 
much different than um, anything we had seen. You know, like the history of man, simple viruses mutate. They go from one species to the other and they get a sick. And this is no different. Um, the big difference with this virus, other than how it causes the disease, is the people it affects. And I don't want to sound morbid or, or unfeeling here, but in the strictest sense, if you look at the virus itself, it's population control. It kills people that have other underlying issues or people that are over the age of about 60 is the, is the biggest um, category of patients that are at the highest risk. It is almost undetected or unnoticed in patients 24 years and younger, um, which is very um, interesting. So we have this virus that really only affects the, the old and the infirmed, and then the rest of the population has very minimal effects from this virus. So that's, that's basically where we are now. And we've, we've kind of figured out which drugs are helpful, when they're helpful, and, you know, we, we're definitely improving upon our treatment of these, these patients. There's still people dying, but, um, you know, it's, it's getting less and less every day. Did the use of ventilators change when the realization that it was acting differently than other coronaviruses, did that, did that stay the same or was there something that was changing along the way, I guess? Yes. We now, we initially, when we saw what looked like this ARDS syndrome going on, now we, we tend to intubate later on realizing that we've got to get the inflammation under control. They probably won't need intubation. So there's a lot more patients in the ICUs that aren't actually intubated. Um, whereas with a flu or, 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 you know, any other kind of viral ARDS syndrome, we, we intubate earlier. So it has definitely changed the, 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 the need and the use of ventilators. Okay. And you had brought up the, the, the seemingly devastating effects on older people, but the lack of even noticing it in younger people. Um, I'm going to kind of take that into where we're going in the fall here with the chance of schools not reopening across the country. Um, I believe New York state where we are is going to attempt to open some kind of a hybrid uh, version here. Um, what do you say Like, is our, our kids teachers safe? Like what, what would you suggest for parents and teachers and Anybody else whose, you know, lives depend on these schools reopening in the fall, um, is there risk? If there is, what is it? And, you know, what's the risk of not going back to school? So there have been multiple studies. And like I said earlier, you can, you can um, see a lot, of, a lot of different countries have found, come to the same conclusion that right around mid-20s is the cutoff for these patients. 90% of patients 24 years of age and younger have no symptoms. Now, the difficulty there is trying to figure out the transmission pattern because they don't have these symptoms. Are they still as likely to, to transmit? My advice, and in Texas, we're doing a hybrid model as well, basically doing online schooling to my advice was to my brother, who's a school teacher in the state of New York, and my other brother who's an administrator in the state of New York school system would be to take your, you, you know who your teachers are that are at risk, you know, that fall into that high risk category. And you either 
furlough or your sabbatical them and you get someone in to, to, to replace them or to take their spot for a certain time until this, this passes until we're kind of either at a herd immunity or we have an effective treatment for this. Um, and then they come back and teach personally. I'm not worried about the kids. My daughter's going to go back to school. I'm not worried about it. The young, healthy teachers, they shouldn't worry about it. Um, you know, if you fall into that high risk group, then you probably shouldn't be teaching. If you have high risk people at home, then you should probably, you know, minimize their contact with the kids. Um, if it's possible, you know, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles kind of stay away and, and self quarantine. But as far as the school age population and the younger teachers, I don't think there should be any, any worry or concern about going back to school. Uh, Dr. Doe, you brought up the idea of herd immunity, and I think that's what a lot of people are hoping for will be the return to normalcy. Uh, the most common avenue that people are thinking is a vaccine. Uh, can you talk a little bit about whether the vaccine is the end-all, be-all, or what are the different avenues that we could achieve herd immunity and the pros and the cons? You know, if we look at where we're at right now as far as percent recovered and mortality rates, we're actually right around the flu which has a vaccine. So I don't think a vaccine, especially in the short term, is going to be the answer or even be possible. I think we have a better chance of hitting that herd immunity. Um, you know, and especially once we get a better idea of how kids transmit this or, or do kids transmit this from, from person to person, you know, the best thing they could do is go back to school because these young kids giving it to a young, another young kid that is 90% are asymptomatic. That's how you're going to reach herd immunity. You know, this is what South Korea did for, for me. They're the best model of how to react to this. You know, if you're sick, stay home, self quarantine. If you have underlying medical conditions, stay home, self quarantine. If you're much older, stay home, self quarantine, but the rest of the country goes back to normal. And, you know, maybe screen a little more for temperature and exposure, but don't, you know, don't shut down the whole economy because you're worried about a few people getting sick. Um, I think you're starting to see Sweden hit a herd immunity. And if you look at Sweden versus Finland, one shut down the school system, one didn't. Um, and there's really negligible difference between the two and the outcomes and the mortality of this. So, we, 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 you're in Houston, um, which is, you know, perceived in the media at least to be a hotbed. Um, you, along with Florida and Arizona, seem to be the three states, Texas, that is being the, the three states that get brought up the most as far as um, when compared to how New York, specifically where we are, handled the virus. Um, you guys are, you know, perceived to have blundered, if you will, or mm -hmm. at least going down the wrong path in those states, even though the data doesn't necessarily suggest that you, I mean, suggest that you are uh, handled it much better than, than our governor in our state did. Um, give us a, give us a, a, a view of what's happening in where you are in Houston, um, what you hear, what else is going on in Texas. And if you have some observational uh, comparisons between how Texas and New York has handled the situation. 
So the great thing about where I am in Texas, it will, about where I am in Texas, because anyone can see this. Anyone with a smartphone can go to Google and look up Texas Medical Center real-time COVID stats, and you can have them. And it'll show you not only how many COVID patients are there, it'll tell you how much, what percentage of the ICUs the COVID patients are taking up. You know, it, it, it's it's out there. It's very open. Now, as far as how we've dealt with the infection and you know how how the press is perceiving that there was an internal communication between the major um, hospitals and the medical centers and they kind of shot themselves in the foot and they kind of started you know they, they kind of let out information that was easily misinterpreted and basically what they said was our ICUs have doubled percent capacity in only a few days well first off the ICUs in the medical center want to operate 90 to 95% capacity. And that capacity is the normal capacity, not the total capacity, not total possible capacity. That's their normal operating capacity. So when they said they doubled in only a few days, they actually went from 40% to 80%, which you think, wow, that's, that's horrible. No, they want to be at 90 to 95% because that's where the hospital is generating revenue and they're, they're in good standing, you know, financially. So as the percentages went up and up and people kept looking and looking, they started to publish more and more. Oh, this hospital is at 102% capacity. Well, you know, first of all, if you're at 102%, you should realize you're probably not seeing the truth true numbers. What does 102% mean? Well, it means they had to go into some of those reserves and use a few beds there. But the percentage of COVID patients in these ICUs never topped 30%. So, you know. And and is there, piggybacking on the rooms specifically, are are there staff to be able to, you know, make sure that these rooms are are appropriately being handled as well? Absolutely. Uh, The big thing that we did because of this, uh, you know, this worry about the capacity of the ICUs, the biggest thing we did in Houston was we went back and shut down elective surgeries again. So now you've got all those staff that aren't doing elective surgeries, caring for those patients, either preoperatively, postoperatively. So you've got a lot of free bodies. And as much as the press tells you these hospitals are just overflowing and they tell you the morgues are overflowing, well, you can call any funeral director and ask them, hey, are you are you at capacity? Do you have more than you can handle? And I'll tell you no. And if you talk to any, you know, people that go in and sell things, you know, reps that sell things within the hospital, they come to my office and say, Hey, uh, you have any cases, you know, because the hospital's dead, you know, they're not doing anything. So this idea that, that it's, you know, we have bodies in the street or whatever they want you I'm to just waiting for a new set of those uh, little <laughs> crazy little nurse videos where they're kind of floating around on gurneys and stuff. Isn't that, is supposed to happen oh, yeah. on a national level because I think that was happening here. So, yeah, yeah, I did see some of those. You know, and you think to yourself, if it's that bad, how do they have time for that? <laughs> Fair question, uh, Doctor Doe. Help me understand what would it take to overwhelm the health system where you are? I mean, you're. I'm getting the impression from what you're saying that you're not close. Numbers are coming in that you're getting more and more positive tests. What would it take? Like, how far away are we? Um, well, the Texas Medical Center, and again, you can check me, check this data if you want to, but the Texas Medical Center uh, ICU status, we're probably about half of what our total capacity could be. Okay. And 
you know, as we test more and more people, as we see a lower and lower mortality rate, you know, it would have to be an astronomical second wave to overcome our capacity. And not only that, if we're at half capacity now, if we shut down hospitals for nothing but COVID, you know, we're probably at a fifth of total capacity. So we'd still be able to increase what we can do. Uh, And we're just, I I don't think we're going to see it. And I I feel like the narrative in the press has shifted to all of a sudden it was, look at how many people are dying from this. And then you realize 32,000 deaths in New York state and we have 3,900 deaths in Texas, even though we were open and far less uh, restrictive and our number of cases is going through the roof. Well, as we get more tests, as we have a lot of these numbers that are coming back are, are falling into two categories. They're PCR tests that were performed three to four months ago that take that long to come back. Um, and the other thing that there was just a um, kind of Texas uh, Medical Association, Texas Medical Board kind of came down hard on these testing sites because you pull up in your car and you get tested and you're positive. And they say, come back in two weeks. And when you come back in two weeks, they test you. Well, they count that as two positives. So, you know, the numbers are definitely inflated. And we've had many instances of, you know, these testing kits sent back with someone's name on it that was never tested or people waiting in line to these testing centers that filled out all the forms but got sick of waiting and left. And they're getting calls and letters in the mail. Hey, you tested positive when they never actually had a test performed. So we're, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, and San Antonio just retracted, I think, 3,400 cases or 3,100 cases that were probable COVID positives. So I, I want to revisit what you just said on the mortality rate is dropping. And I think for a lot of people, you think whatever the mortality rate of a disease is, it is. That's, that's something that is sort of fixed. Can you go into what's causing a mortality rate of this virus to drop as time goes on? Well, two things. One, hopefully we're getting better at treating this, and I think we are. And two, we're becoming more aware of just how extensive this disease is and how much earlier we were actually seeing this disease than we thought we were. There was a physician uh, who's a um it basically takes care of pilots. I'm trying. I'm blanking on the word. Medical examiner. Medicine. No, 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 <laughs> not that kind. No. So he's um, kind of like an occupational um, physician, and in his main patients are uh, pilots. Had about 9,500 pilots that he takes care of, and he's estimating back in August these pilots, since they were moving internationally, going to China, going throughout Asia, that these pilots were coming down with something. They were testing negative for every flu, for every kind of different, you know, viral infection. And they believe that these 80% of these pilots that were getting sick were probably COVID patients. So it was probably around in August of 2019. And we're starting to see the number of people that were exposed to it. We're starting to see the number of people that actually have it. And that's driving the total number of cases up. Whereas the number of patients dying, especially when we label them correctly is dropping. So we're seeing this big drop in, in mortality and that's what's happening. And, and so let's go back. So you're saying these pilots may have had this, or at least maybe 
uh, asymptomatic maybe as back as August. Well, that kind of messes up the, well, I don't say messes up, but it kind of extends the timeline um, from some of the information we were getting out of some of these countries early on, uh, specifically China, whereas the birth of this virus. So if it was being spread by pilots in August, I'm guessing that it was either, you know, available in, or uh, in China at that point and has been spread long before we had anticipated or, or thought it did. I think, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think if you look back at the timeline and, and, and the most difficult issue with the timeline is China being a reliable China, being source China. exactly for the information on this. We know for a fact that they saw their first patient long before December 31st, which was when they reported seeing their first patient. Um, I think it just got to a point where it was out of control and it was, they were unable to, to cover it up um, that this was happening. And I, I think it's realistic to say it probably was there much earlier than December 31st or even December uh, that we were seeing cases. But the most difficult part is going to be, again, China being China and not telling us the truth as to how many cases they're seeing. Taiwan, um, you know, they were reporting some strange pneumonia far before December. I want to say early November, end of October. So there's evidence there. You know, we're never going to really know when this started, but we do know when it got out of hand, and that's when China probably started being honest with the with the WHO and with the world. Can we put honest in air quotes? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I think it's becoming more and more obvious that the virus is highly contagious, easily transmissible from person to person. What are the most common means of the transmission? Like, am I am I more or less likely to get it by sitting here with Sean? Am I going to get it walking to the grocery store? Like, where I know it can happen anywhere, but what are your most likely outcomes there? So, the best indicators we have, looking at all the evidence, and different you know candidates come out with studies, and different different sources of, of studies are looking at this transmission. The most likely scenario is prolonged person-to-person contact, you know, half an hour or so in very close um, kind of space with another person. Canada, British Columbia, um, they looked at the epidemiology of the spread and they feel that it's not an airborne um, transmission. It's a droplet transmission. So you have to, basically someone's got to sneeze in close proximity to you and You've got to be, you know, rubbing your eyes or, you know, those types of things. It's not like it's just floating in the air and and everybody's going to catch it. And how long does those uh, droplets last in the air? Is that a known number? So uh, Stanford's done excellent work on their virology department on the life of this virus. They've shown 30 minutes in UV light kills the virus. Um, temperatures, um, I'm blanking the exact number, but above 70 degrees for about 60 minutes kills this virus. You know, direct sunlight can kill this virus in, in, in 30 minutes or so. So we know that this isn't a very hardy, very difficult virus to, um, to kill. Um, and most surfaces, even cardboard, the virus doesn't live very long, especially if the temperature is high enough. So 
as expected, you know, warm weather and sun. You guys ever get that in New York? Uh, actually, the last few, <laughs> for this month, whatever, I don't know, other than the, the, the actual virus, the weather here has been pretty good, I have to say, for, for upstate New York, yeah. We were about I mean, 95 we a, today. Yeah, we had a heat index of 102 today, so it was Texas yeah, hot. <laughs> yeah, hopefully by September we can get below 90. So. <laughs> uh, and f- following up on the droplet thing, I think this might be an easy way to, if there's something that we should talk about with masks and the transmission, um, if it's being transmitted through droplets. So this is this is proving more difficult to, to prove, disprove. You know, I, I don't like to say anything without some good evidence to back it up. And what we're seeing more now as far as transmission goes it looks like you have about a 24 to 48 hour incubation period before you're seeing symptoms started out we thought it was as much as a week we thought patients were spreading it during this asymptomatic period but it looks like the new the new data looks like 24 48 hours and then you get symptomatic and we know from any virus you can spread it when you're symptomatic the question is, can you spread it in that 24, 48 hours where you're not showing symptoms? And we don't know that yet. So my personal advice is, especially if you get an exposure, wear a mask. As long as you're not doing anything strenuous, wear a mask. It's not going to kill you. <laughs> it's probably going to save you. If you're sick and you have to go out, wear a mask. Um, but I do not propose patients that feel – or people that feel good enough to exercise. And when you're driving your car um, – don't be wearing a mask. You know, there's there's far greater issues if you you know, can't breathe and you're in your car. You're going to cause a lot more damage to a lot more people than if you're just standing there and wearing a mask. Uh, as far as the masks go, any difference or any cloth mask, surgical mask, N95s, all good, all varying degrees. Where do we come down on that? Um, <laughs> it's a tough question. I know. I'm sorry. You know, if we wanted to have the right mask for 100% safety, it would just not be feasible. There's no way we could produce that many. You know, it looks like there was a study done showing N95 wasn't superior to any surgical mask. Um, You know, cloth mask, you know, they're probably somewhere in between. So my recommendation would be a surgical mask, but if you get to a point where you're sneezing and this you, you think you really need to wear a mask, then you probably shouldn't be going out and, and being in public and doing all those things. Right. Uh, doctor, let me follow up on something else. Pre-symptomatic versus asymptomatic spread. Can you go into a little bit on the difference between the terms and what we're seeing from the data on the spread of each of those? Sure. So we don't have clear-cut data yet. Um, most patients, the estimate is up to 90% of people that get the uh, this COVID virus are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. The question is, like you said, asymptomatic means you have no symptoms. Um, and a lot of patients never have any symptoms, even though they have it or they test positive for the, the COVID virus. Pre-symptomatic, most viruses you can spread just prior to having symptoms. So that seems to be more likely. Um, the asymptomatic spread, we're still not clear on that, but I think we're starting to lean more towards pre-symptomatic being a much higher chance of spreading it. And this is where it gets tricky with the with the kids, with the young kids, is if they're if asymptomatic uh, patients can't spread it, then the kids may not be a help to get to herd immunity. Right. Um, you know, but for the most part. 
probably pre-symptomatic is, is can be spread asymptomatic. Maybe not. And so I, I don't know if you have, I don't don't think I've asked you, do you think the lockdowns have helped worked, not helped worked? Um, Social distancing, same questions. Like are those things uh, worthwhile ventures to continue in some of these places or is that something that is uh, overreach? Um, well, I think this is, this is a glaring example of government hypocrisy. You know, if we're going to allow protests and then we're going to try to spin it, that that didn't cause any increased number of cases, but we can't go to the bar and sit six feet away from the person we, you know, then the strangers that are there with us, you know, it doesn't make any sense though. As far as the lockdowns go, I don't think so. I think, you know, the way Korea, South Korea did it, the way that Finland did it, you know, to, to go through life thinking you're never going to get an infection, you're never going to get an infection bad enough that's going to kill s- some people that, you know, obviously Father Time's undefeated. But the, the idea that these, these lockdowns are going to somehow help us and not just prolong it. You know, initially it was flatten the curve, um, which was admirable. Right. But in reality, is it is it possible? I don't think so, and I don't think the lockdowns really helped. If we look at the SARS um, one data, you know, what did China do to combat that? And you know, we didn't wear masks for that. What? Well, how did we get rid of that? Well, the Chinese started washing their hands. They started practicing some social distancing, um, and, and the virus went away. You know, it was it was pretty much that simple. Um, you know, I don't want to bash China too much. My my wife's parents came from China. So. I hope you don't have a TikTok no. account. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why Sean and I are friends. <laughs> we know better. But I think that, um, you know, I don't think the lockdown was the right policy. And and actually, one one glaring fact that I always tell people, and you'll see this in the uh, the presentation I gave you. If you if you want to publish that too, you can you can do that. Feel okay, free. Thank you. In the three months after Harvey hit Houston, the number of calls for strangulation by a domestic partner exceeded the total number of calls in 2016. So, and, and that was a natural disaster. We didn't have any choice. We had to stay inside. When you impose these lockdowns like this for this extended period of time, I can't imagine what those statistics are now. The other glaring statistic, you look at Europe, massive lockdowns the estimate is at least at least and it's probably not even close 50 percent more people are dying from heart attacks at home out of fear of going to the hospital and catching uh covet so or coronavirus so you know there's there's a big flip side to this coin and that's a mental health issue and that's the other medical issue you know you'd think if, especially if you look at New York State and how they're reporting all these deaths from uh, COVID, you'd think we cured cancer and we cured heart disease and we cured everything else you could possibly die from. Um, and the only thing that kills you now is COVID. And we know that's not the case. So th- there's a big impact. And especially with these shutdowns, I don't think it helps the, the other side of medicine, which is a lot more diseases. Well, just listening to what you just said, if the number one way this virus transmit is prolonged, very close contact, and the things that are bad for it are sunshine, warm weather, and UV light, am I crazy for thinking maybe locking everybody in their houses together and not telling them to go outside might have a negative impact 
Well, you know, absolutely. I've been preaching that for a long time. And and the the opponents of that are the people that say, hey, look, it's summertime and the, the cases in Florida and Texas and Arizona are spiking. Well, again, we can look at the number of cases all day long. If you don't look at the mortality that corresponds, then you're not really looking at the full picture. And the mortality we know is is at or below the flu that has a vaccine. If we can piggyback mental health on, I know gyms are open in Texas. They are not open in New York. What is that like? Uh, You know, are are people going to the gym? Is there uh, a sense of... uh, being scared going to the gym for fear of transmission? Like wh- what's happening in Texas and why, 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 sh- why would New York have gyms closed? Like, it seems like that would be uh, uh, the opposite of, of creating healthy people. Yeah, exactly. And I don't understand that. You know, if, if you see that healthy people are very mildly affected by this uh, virus, then why not enable them to get healthy? And, here in Texas, there's an excellent study done that showed that, you know, going to the gym and working out had very minimal increased risk of even being a COVID case. As we said, you know, cases really don't mean much. Um, but especially, you know, patients that have progressed to have real severe or, or even moderate illnesses from this. So the data we have is pretty strong and it's pretty good saying that going to the gym and working out is, is very little risk to you. And again, the people that are going to the gym working out are the young, healthy ones that are not going to get affected by this. Now, what we've seen in Texas is we've limited the number of spots we have in a gym, and it does it by the size of the gym. Um, the gym I go to is no more than 15 people per hour. So you sign up you know, the day or so before, and then you go in, and at the end of your hour, you're supposed to leave. Well, the nice thing is as long as you don't hit that 15 for capacity, you know, you're not restricted to the hour and they've been, you know, pretty good about that. But even the big gyms, LA fitness and those things are doing the same thing down here. And uh, as long as you sign up the night before you get your spot, you can go in, you can work out. I will say this. It never seems like, you know, Oh no, I, I didn't get to go to the gym on the hour I wanted because the spots were all taken up. So I do think there's a fair amount of people that are staying home that are worried about this, um, which you know, again, to me, personal responsibility. If if you're not comfortable with it, then then don't do it. Uh, I, I listen. I think I'm in total agreement there. If 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 the gyms are open and you don't want to go, you're not actually forced. You you can still stay home and not go to the gym. I just think that needs to be cleared up on occasion. Uh, Doctor Dunn, let me take you back. You said that when we we were talking about how do we get to the point of herd immunity. You said you didn't think a vaccine would be likely to work for this virus. And I wanted to circle back, not to completely shift gears on you, but what can you go into a little more on that? Why would a vaccine? That's all we're hearing about all the time. I mean, Massachusetts just came out with rules that said certain industries will be closed until there is a vaccine. Um, Yeah. Go to a little of that, please. So it's not so much I don't think the vaccine will work. I think if you look back at any of these viruses, even the flu, you know, how long it takes to develop a vaccine. Um, and a good vaccine that that helps, it, it, it's much more than a few months. You know, I, I don't think there's been a real vaccine out there that's been uh, other than maybe smallpox. Um, and that was simply because if you got the, the less severe cowpox, you didn't get smallpox. So you just infected everybody with, with cowpox. But I just think the reality of getting a vaccine out there in a very short period of time um, and 
not having a massive economic impact in that short period of time, I, I just don't think you can do it. Um, you know, if there's a good, well-studied vaccine, then certainly I'll do it. There was a vaccine trial of 15 patients early, uh, what we call phase two trial, and one of the patients got severely ill from the vaccine. So you're looking at one out of 15, 7%. That's a real high risk rate for a vaccine. You know, the the, the flu, the, the, the risk of uh, a syndrome you can get from having the flu vaccine is about one in 100,000. Um, so that's, that's really the risk area you want to be in. Yeah, I'm no mathematician, but one in seven sounds worse. <laughs> going with that uh along the same line as far as treatments now goes uh we've got a couple of options on the table that i think are showing promise uh you're gonna have to bear with me as i butcher some of these names the the remetasvir versus hydroxychloroquine Both and, better than my attempts <laughs> i practiced that just so you know that wasn't the first try but i, I think i got it close <laughs> of what are the the treatments that we're seeing now and the impact and your opinion overall on those so when this virus initially came out and they were trying all these things, they were trying the hydroxychloroquine, they were trying the remdesivir, and nobody was getting better. Well, a lot of us physicians were saying, of course not. You know, this is late in the course of a virus. Nothing tends to work in those patients. Just like I said, if you don't get your Tamiflu within 48 hours of getting the flu, you're going to get the flu and you're going to be really sick. So, um, we don't have anything now. Actually, we do have something that's been somewhat effective in later disease, and that's a, a drug called dexamethasone, a steroid. Basically, once we start attacking this, this the body's response to it, we're getting better clinical outcomes. By no means a cure, but but better outcomes. Um, but early disease, early to moderate symptoms. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, mild to moderate symptom patients, especially high risk. The hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. Um, has been shown to be extremely effective in those patients. Remdesivir, we really haven't seen a great study. It makes sense it would, just like Tamiflu. Um, but the big difference is, you know, remdesivir is a, a patent versus the hydroxychloroquine, which is pennies on the dollar, as is azithromycin. Um, so, Dr. You know, Joe, real quick, you cut out there. Could you repeat that part? Right after you were getting into the remdesivir was, was uh, causing X. So remdesivir, you know, is an expensive under patent drug. You know, I, I think I heard once it's like $2,000 for a course of treatment versus the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin treatment might be five bucks for the course of treatment. It's, it's very inexpensive. And as far as we know, neither one is more effective than the other. And we're still not sure that remdesivir has any effectiveness early on. Okay. What did we miss? What, what did we need to tell everybody that we didn't cover here? Is there anything that you uh, want to make sure that we touch on before we let you go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's have it. So... One of the interesting things, so we got quarantined, right? We got locked down, and I'm thinking, this could be the Spanish flu. So I'm reading everything I can about this because, you know, I'm a bit of a prepper. And uh, <laughs> so I'm getting ready. I'm trying to figure out, is there anything effective? What should I do? Should I run for the hills? And one of the things we see, one, one subgroup of unhealthy people that really gets affected by this virus are patients with high blood pressure. 
And like I said, it gets in through the receptor that we use for the medications to regulate blood pressure. So early on, when we found this out, we thought, okay, let's give these patients that don't have high blood pressure the anti-high blood pressure medicines, and they should do better. And in actuality, they don't. Um, we do them no good either way by giving these medicines. So it's it's a very tricky, very strange acting virus. Um, and for whatever reason, patients that are already on these drugs that block this receptor still have a worse course um, than patients that don't have high blood pressure and don't use these uh, these medications. So it's it's a bit of a you know conundrum to figure out how this how and why this happens. So um, and and overall, like I said, you know this is obviously this is a deadly disease, but the the, the biggest reason it's deadly is because it's new and we don't know the right way to treat it yet. We're learning more and more every day. And what we do know so far is the very young are spared and the very old and the sick are not. Um, so I don't think that, that, you know, the working population, if you look at H1N1, it affected people age five to 65. That's the working class. You know, that, that, that's going to be a huge economic impact. So you've really got to be careful with that. You look at uh, COVID-19 and it affects people over the age of 60 and people with other, you know, pre-existing illnesses. That's not the working class. You know, there's no reason to kill the economy um, for those high risk patients because we know who they are and we know we can hopefully get them, convince them to, to, to isolate themselves as South Korea was very good at, um, as was, uh, Finland or Sweden. So I, I think there's no reason we shouldn't be able to go back to work, go back to school. And, you know, this virus will turn out to be a lot less scary than we think it is. Dr. Doe, I'm going to leave it there. I thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope to be in contact with you. Maybe uh, another uh, appearance here on the show as we get some new information, something that we can reassess and kind of pass on to the people will be something in our future. Uh, hopefully, if you're interested in ABLE, that'll happen. Absolutely. And if you, you know, if you take questions during the show and keep getting recurrent, the same question over and over, feel free to shoot them to me in an email and uh, I'll try to answer as many as I can. I very much appreciate it. I will do that. Dr. Doe, thank you for joining us. Uh, looking forward to seeing you again in the near future. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Take Thanks. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Out here. All right. So that was Dr. Doe, and I want to thank him again for joining us and taking his time out to uh, kind of break down uh, where we are in the world of corona. Um, he's going to be back part of the uh, program again. Uh, I'm not sure every single week, but uh, as we get new information on this virus, we'll be using Dr. Doe as a resource uh, moving forward. Um, Mr. Hughesong, anything else you would like to uh, let the fans know, let the audience know before uh, we let them go? Uh, no, thank you guys again for tuning in. And if you can uh, share this, like this, subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. Um, we enjoy doing this. It's a lot of fun. We like getting to interact with everybody. And uh, if you do have questions, you want some more information on the coronavirus, send them in. We'll have Dr. Doe take a look, and uh, he's more than happy to oblige. And, you know, knowledge is power. All right, folks. Like on that note, see you next week.